You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. My guest on The Luxury Item is American high-end fashion designer, Billy Reed. Headquartered out of Florence, Alabama, Billy Reed has been making expertly crafted standout clothes for more than 20 years. Billy Reed offers menswear, womenswear, footwear, and accessories with an emphasis on domestic manufacturing, proprietary textiles development, and high-quality construction. After his eponymous brand endured several cataclysmic setbacks early on, Billy Reed is now a fully developed, successful global operation with a healthy store network, wholesale distribution, and growing e-commerce business. His southern roots paired with a downtown New York sensibility embody the aesthetic and lifestyle of the brand. Emphasizing craftsmanship, expert tailoring, and the use of unconventional fabrics, Reed's collections reflect a personal authenticity. It's been said that Billy Reed doesn't make clothes that stand out. He makes clothes that stand the test of time. Billy Reed earned some of the most prestigious honors in fashion, including four CFDA awards from the Council of Fashion Designers and GQ's Best New Menswear Designer. Welcome to The Luxury Item, Billy. Hey, thanks for having me, Scott. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you on the show. You know, Billy, you've had quite the journey since your first foray into the world of designer fashion in 1998 with the launch of a men's only line, William Reed, in New York. What were those very early days like? And what was the original formula you had in mind for the William Reed brand at the time? We started you know, out of, out of our bedroom, basically. Uh, and my wife was pregnant with our first child at the time. And we were also uh, remodeling uh, the house that we had bought. So there's a lot of chaos and a lot of changes in life at that point. Um, you know, it, it sort of, it, it, and that was it, you know, really it was me, uh, you know, just starting. And then we had uh, hired an assistant uh, to work to work with me and, and to get the collection together. The, the idea behind it really was I was at a, a point where I had been doing um, a lot of freelance work for different people. After being with Reebok for six years, I spent about four years, um, you know, doing all, uh, just different freelance projects from Fruit of the Loom to PGA Tour. Uh, yeah. And I uh, did some stuff with Nina Marcus and Taka Shamaya, Fruit of the Loom underwear uh, project. I mean, really tons of different uh, freelance things. And a friend had suggested, man, you should really try to do your own collection. And I had uh, yeah, thought about it. And so let me just kind of try it, see what happens. And went, you know, really the premise was I would always go shopping and could not find things that, you know, I, I liked, whether it was a uh, you know, a certain detail or a certain fit or fabric, you know, it's one of those things that's like, man, I, sh- I should try to like make it the way I would like to make it. And so I, I went to Italy where I had the samples and was got it, you know, sent photos and got accepted to uh, a trade show in New York, which was called the collective at the time, which was kind of a big menswear um, trade show mm-hmm. i went there i had great reaction but we only opened two accounts um, which is not a lot <laughs> we were able to kind of figure it out and we just went ahead and made the minimum kind of production runs and took those two accounts which were really they were good accounts there were fred siegel in los angeles oh, and, yeah. Stan- and stanley korshak in dallas and we were fortunate enough to you know 
they partnered with us. We got the product in there. We did a couple of trunk shows and it went really well. And, um, you know, kind of got things up and up and going. And, you know, we, we, for the next season, which would, would have been a fall of 98, uh, launch, we, we made this leather sketchbook. We made a hundred of them mm-hmm. that had these, you know, little hand-painted sketches and swatches and it, it just had a really great feel to it. And at that time, you know, of course there's no internet or social media at that point. So we're sending it to what would been, what we thought were kind of the influencers of the moment, which for us at that time would have been the buying teams at Barney's and Raymond's right. and, you know, uh, editors. And, um, we had a great reaction to the book, the little sketchbook people kept, were calling us for appointments. And we went from those two accounts to 37 accounts, the next, that following season. And they were with some really, um, terrific retailers. And that kind of got us up and going. I'd like to say I had some master plan, but I really didn't, you know, I really (laughs) just, uh, um, we just, uh, you know, we, we were fortunate that people liked the clothes and they, and it, and it was successful. And that was really the start of it at that point. So growing up in Louisiana, there's definitely more of a reality factor in mm-hmm. people and the way you approach life. And did that influence the aesthetic and lifestyle of your brand? I think subconsciously, all of those things, you know, cer- certainly for us. And I really, you know, we take, I definitely take a personal approach to the collection and to really everything we do. Um, so that, you know, and being from a small town in South Louisiana, that certainly, you know, I have fond memories of that. It's certainly a long way from New York and it, and the aesthetic certainly at that time were, is, is, is very different. You know, I think it keeps, keeps it somewhat grounded in some ways. Um, you know, never forgetting where you come from some ways and, you know, it, when I started the collection, William Reed collection, I had at that point I had lived in Los Angeles and New York and uh, Boston, and you know traveled a lot of places developing products. So definitely, kind of having that viewpoint of 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 the world and what you know that consumer looks like, but also you know really uh, you know knowing that it, it, there's there's places like Amy Louisiana out there, and how does that how do people react to your things you make that are in those areas as well. And you were really building some momentum with the brand. And in 2001, you won the CFDA Mm -hmm. award for best new menswear designer. But that same Mm -hmm. year, your business also fell victim to the 9-11 attacks during New York Mm -hmm. Fashion Week. Can you share with the listeners what happened that week and what followed? Sure. I mean, yeah, all of those things happened kind of in a, just a a huge uh, tsunami. I mean, really of, everything turning against us from, we, you know, we had won the CFDA award in June of 2001, which really kind of, you know, kind of helped us, you know, get some note, some recognition uh, and attention. So that next runway show was September 10th, uh, you know, uh, of 2001. And, you know, the build up to it, the invitation list, you know, we had more important people coming to the show than we had in the past, more important buyers. Um, and at that time, two runway shows were, you know, also used to kind of sell your collection, you know, or at least get it in front of the buyers. What typically would happen after then, it, you know, think the world has changed, but back then, 
sort of the day after your show is when you start booking, you know, all of your appointments to sell the collection. And um, so we, you know, we, we hosted the show. We, we used to have this kind of pretty empty where, warehouse space in, um, in Chelsea. You know, at that time, there was nothing over there on 20, on 28th right, Street. Right. It's changed quite a bit. Yeah. Thus, we could afford a warehouse space. But um, so, yeah, we, we had this great show. The reaction was really strong. And I went back to the apartment which was um, on Christopher street and uh, you know, right, right near the West side highway. So, yeah, we, you know, we, we went out, we celebrated and the, the next morning and I turned on the, the television and, you know, I, you know, see the planes going into the building. And you, at that point, I really didn't, you don't know, you know, you don't know what's going on. First of all, then you're trying to think about what do you do? You know, should I, what's up with the rest of the day? You know, this is obviously big, a big deal. At the time, you didn't realize it. And again, there's no social media. There's really not even, you know, a robust internet type situation at that it, during that time. So mm-hmm. I immediately went up to the up to the office and, you know, we had 75 appointments scheduled for those like the, t- on top of each other, two, three deep on the appointments. We lost all of the, you know, everything. Nobody showed up, obviously, yeah. you know, things just went. Uh, started to unravel at that point and you know at one point it's like okay guys so let's 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 get out of here you know this is not sounding good I couldn't get a hold of my family and I started walking back to the uh, apartment and down the west side highway and I saw this you know the people were just covered in the you know the white dust and I'm like what is you know I couldn't I just couldn't place it all it was just all so like out of a horror movie I really think those days after it was just it was just a state of shock you know, just a state of shock and not knowing what to do or, or, you know, so many thoughts running through your head. And and plus we had people, you know, that worked with us in town as well that didn't live in New York that were also trying to get out of New York. So there were some logistics kind of in play there. Of course there were, you know, there was no way to rent a car. There was no way to get a taxi. So those next few days afterwards were kind of really just trying to figure out how to get out of New York and get, to my family as a, as a fashion entrepreneur who just saw the highs mm-hmm. and lows, the absolute mm-hmm. highs and lows in a matter of, you know, two days exactly. just took sun- yeah. center stage at the huh. main event. That must've been yeah. obviously very defeating mentally. Was there any mm-hmm. point over those few days after where you just felt discouraged and just wanted to pack it in? It was a little bit of process trying to process everything. You know, I was just, I just really wanted to get, to my family, you know, my kids and my wife, it just kind of just, that's the only thing I could think about at the time, Yeah, you know, and, but I, I, obviously I couldn't help but think about like, what are we going to do? Because at also, you know, kind of running concurrently with that, my investor was, had a company that was in the dot-com um, bubble bursting at the same time. So, I mean, just the perfect storm because you're also, you know, you're with the way the product cycle works, you know, we're already positioning and forecasting for raw materials and, um, <laughs> you know, booking our factory time and all of those things. And all of that just completely unraveled, you know, within, a, you know, six weeks to a couple of months. And yeah, then it was a, a huge scramble of just 
personal su- sustainability at that point. So you moved down with your family back to uh, to Florence, Alabama, your yes. wife's hometown and headquarters of your brand. Mm-hmm. And as, as America mourned in the wake of 9-11 terrorist attack, people turned to music, turned to food and destinations mm-hmm. that offered this comfort and, and light. Mm-hmm. Was that what you found in returning to Florence? After kind of the, the shock and, you know, really trying to get, get ourselves just on our feet somewhat, it was sort of this moment where I did feel like if we were going to try to come back, it, it really should just be a completely different, you know, way of doing it. So we went, you know, the biggest change, one of the biggest changes was the collection was William Reed, which is my, you know, full name. And, but nobody's ever, no one's ever called me William. You know, that moment was probably the, one of the biggest, so I said, yeah, whatever we do, I just want it to be real. You know, I really want it to come from a true personal point of view, because if we're going to fail or it's going to get taken away from us, Let's do exactly, let's do it the way we want to do it, you know, versus with William Reed, we did not have any retail stores. We sold to, you know, great retailers that did a wonderful job, but it, you know, Barney's may buy the collection, but they buy maybe 10 to 12 styles or, you know, if, um, if, if Beams bought it, you know, they may get eight things and it's like, okay, well, it's kind of hard to tell your full story in that way. And you're also sort of making sure that what you're you're giving them something for them, not necessarily, you know, for what it influences things somewhat. Uh, we, when we relaunched, we, we did come from that point of view and we completely changed the business model and did not wholesale. We opened our own stores and that gave us a chance to really, really tell our, a complete sort of brand story um, because we had, you know, the stores where people could come in, they could see it, feel it smell it, hear it. And so all of those things you talked about, about people wanting to experience things, we were able to kind of do it in our own way. And if they liked it, then, you know, we'd be, we'd be successful. So we were very fortunate. Yeah. You opened up the the flagship store in Florence and a couple mm-hmm. more in Texas. Mm-hmm. Can you describe, you're talking about being real, you, well, you know, when you wanted to relaunch, you wanted to be real. Can you describe the vibe your brand was conveying at those Billy Reed boutiques in Florence and Texas? Well, we definitely wanted to uh, have this feeling of hospitality and inviting and warm. And that, that came somewhat from my mom had a, a, a really great clothing store in, in South Louisiana that was in my grandmother's old house. So it had a kitchen, you know, it had uh, you know, living room and place, you know, it was a place where people went to hang out. And even if they didn't come shop, they would come in and hang out. And I always loved that, what she created with that. And sort of, it was an inspiration for us. So I want it to feel like this. I want it to feel like someone's walking into our home. And so we set up the spaces to, you know, have a residential feel to it to the point that obviously we didn't have a ton of money. I mean, we were literally taking furniture out of our house <laughs> and putting it in the stores, you know, so it was definitely a, a lot of personal connectivity to it, but people seem, you know, it seemed to work. I mean, we, the store in Florence, when we opened that, that shop, it was in, at the time it was in an old house that was built in 1833. And so it had a kitchen and, 
it was a former antique store. So there were still some remnants of that in there. And we were able to kind of build this really, you know, hospitality on steroids um, where we, you know, if you can't, if you got them in the door, you had them, you know, because they were, they weren't going to get that vibe anywhere else. Um, so that was sort of how we started and really kind of, as corny as it sounds, I mean, really kind of built it one customer at a time from that point. And when you relaunched the brand in 2004, it was at a time when the way men shopped and the way they care about how they look on a daily basis had been changing rapidly. Mm. This whole mm. metrosexual movement, as it was called, were you seeing that <laughs> happening at the time? Were you seeing happen? Were you seeing that happening at the time where men were taking? Or men were making a more concerted effort to dress more stylishly and look more well-groomed. Definitely could, you know, feel that you could definitely feel that happening. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things where you go, I think that people were just more, they were getting more information. There were more outlets to get information of like how to dress and there was more access. There were a lot more options of, I mean, options available too, good options. So I think all of that sort of, there was a definite interest in menswear in general, you know, starting to happen and men caring about how they dressed. And we didn't really look at that as like, wow, we're going to leverage that. It mm -hmm. was more of, we were just kind of a part of it. What was great that men were coming in, you know, in many cases, like, I want to redo my entire wardrobe. You know, and like, okay, pleated pants have been around for ever, you know, and, and I remember trying to convert my friends to plain front trousers. And if you ever got them to try it on where they could look at themselves in the mirror, they got it versus wearing some, you know, baggy pant all the time that just weighs you down. So if you could get them then and they liked it, well, hey, there, there's three pair of trousers, you're going to sell that customer right there. And same thing with shirting, you know, it's more it, it kind of wardrobe building. And, you know, our philosophy with that is that, yes, we're going to put the details and the fit and, you know, use all the fabrics and the luxury components that are going to make it desirable and kind of our own piece. But it was also something where you may buy this now, but you, you're going to wear this 10 years from now and trying to educate men on the importance of like having the right pieces. And when did you add women's wear to your collection? We, we started, a, a, you know, well, at William Reed, it was, you know, a big part of what we were doing um, with, with, with that. I mean, actually, the minute we introduced women's, which was in 2000 at William Reed, the next season, it became 80% of the business. Hmm. But that was also, I mean, women's is just such a bigger market. And we didn't, again, we didn't have a store. We were wholesaling. So it was a completely different, you know, business structure somewhat and um, wholesale structure to it. But at, at Billy Reed, when we started in 2004 with just men's and 2010, we started to dabble in some pieces, you know, really taking the men's fabrics and doing it in a women's piece or, uh, or a shirt dress. It kind of came from the men's and we did not wholesale it. You know, we, we just kept it in our shops, in, which gave us the opportunities to kind of make mistakes, <laughs> which, you know, always happen as well as find out, you know, kind of what's working. And um, we, we've, we've really never had the full, you know, staff to kind of work on those two things separately, you know, so we almost have to work on them 
you know, as we're working on the men's, we're kind of working with the women's collection at the same time. It's still kind of that way. Certainly they've grown to have their own teams, but we still only care, have the women's collection in our own shops. We do not wholesale it. So from a design standpoint, how do mm-hmm. men's and women's fashion differ? Whew. I think, you know, I think women will certainly the shopping pattern is, is, is probably one of the biggest things. Women are more apt to come in the store a few times a season where a man only may come in once, you know, so there is that frequency of constant newness that is required to mm-hmm. keep that appetite and, and, you know, keep on their radar. That's a, that's a big part of it. Occasional dressing as well. You know, I, I need a dress for this event or I'm going to this party or wedding where, where men want a jacket that can, they may wear it to that wedding, but they're going to, they're, it's more of a, I, I need this for a lot of different things. It's not really just one occasion. So I think that the way they shop is slightly, you know, slightly different in what their specific needs are at the time, I think. And how much of your business is women's wear now? It's about 15% of our business. So in 2010, you were named GQ's best new menswear designer and won the Mm -hmm. CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund Award. Your business was already up and running at that point. Mm -hmm. What was the impact of those two honors on your business? It was a big shot in the arm. I mean, it, it just really helped us get exposure uh, that we were not, you know, an awareness that we weren't getting other than in the markets where we had our own shops. You know, we had also at the time, you know, right before then, you know, in 2000, the late 2008 had opened our first New York store. So the combination of being able to have being in, in New York, which is, you know, sort of the, 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 the fashion media capital and being a, and then having the recognitions from those awards really kind of helped get us get our name out there quite a bit. And then from those, both of those awards, we, we got some really terrific collaborations. Uh, one being with Levi's, which was a huge help because they were, you know, we're able to work with someone that's got just a big mouthpiece and can help, you know, again, bring more attention to what we're doing. And then with the Vogue Fashion Fund, um, we partnered with J. Crew on a collaboration. Mm-hmm. So those, all of that really helped just bring in a whole new um, community of people to work with. And then a mouthpiece that we had never you know, dreamed we would be able to have. Who is the Billy Reed customer and what does the brand evoke in them that makes them loyal and engaged to your brand? I was actually reading where you said that today's customer is more self-focused, not as interested in adhering to a guidebook of what to have in mm-hmm. your wardrobe. Does that kind of describe who your customer is? I think that's a, I think that's a fair description. I, I, they want to stand out without being like overly <laughs> in a good way. Right. You know, they want to stand out for great taste and, I think they also look for things that are that are going to live with them. You know, it's not just, you know, a trendy piece they're going to buy. I mean, they're going to buy this jacket and, you know, they're going to wear it for un- until they wear the damn thing out. You know, I feel like that's their approach. And we try to provide those things that give them that point of difference where it creates that just that subtle, you know, sort of intangible yeah, I understand why this is different, even though if they can't put their finger on it, but they also know they're going to get something, they're going to, they're going to use it, you know, um, 
we used to say usable luxury, you know, and I think that's been over, uh, you know, overcooked a little bit, but yeah. it's still, it is that kind of approach. They, we expect them to, to wear it, you know, and, and get a ton of use out of it. And I, I feel like that's been something our customers have enjoyed. And I think they also just have, I think the, the hospitable part of that, the service that, you know, we've established with our team and that connectivity to it. If they're into that, we're a great landing spot for them, you know, and a really, you know, hopefully good companion for their fashion journey. I was reading a fashion blogger actually said about your brand that Billy Reed, he makes you look good without looking like you worked at it too hard. <laughs> Something guys are programmed to be afraid of. It's an effortless cool. I like it. <laughs> i mean yeah that's so uh, we just had i had a conversation about that and the word effortless and like what the hell does that mean like, oh, it's effortless and they said well nothing is effortless i said well you know it, it is i don't think it's anything we did intentionally you know it really wasn't but i do feel like we build those pieces that can make a someone feel like give them the confidence that if you just do this, this, and this, or put these things together, you're going to look great. And that may not be what you normally think you'd put together, but put it together this way and then try it this way. Like any, like what we've seen great success with is let's say we have a charcoal and cream herringbone jacket and it's an all year round jacket. And you go, okay, here's what, how I'd wear that to a cocktail party. Here's how I'd wear it out to, to dinner. Here's how I'd wear it to work you know, and you start to look at what those pieces look like and how they can put that together. And it's not animals, but it is kind mm -hmm. of hopefully getting to them to that point where the process of making yourself presentable is effortless and it's, and you look cool, you know, and that's, that's, it, it's, it's something that's kind of been there with the collections since it, since, since it started, but I don't, it's not anything we purposely went out to do. You know, it just kind of happened. And maybe that's the effortless part of it. <laughs> We'd have probably screwed it up and we really tried to do it. Um, <laughs> so, but I, whoever said that's, I love that. I'm going to, we'll have, we'll have to write that down and come back to it because I, I, that, that is something that we, I love hearing that. I really like it. So it seems that the series of setbacks that have come your way have also been most instrumental to your growth and success. Mm. Has the pandemic made you think differently about what you do, about what your brand even means in people's lives? Uh, yes, it's a, uh, it's a great question. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, when, you know, the pandemic pandemic really came upon us, man, the flashbacks were, you know, insane for me personally, just thinking about 9-11, mm -hmm. you know, and how, what that affect to, to us and losing everything. You know, in 2008, when we opened the New York shop, we literally flung the doors open the day the stock market crashed in 2008. So it's like, okay, right, how do we get through this? And in 2008, we were able to kind of negotiate some rent reductions, you know, figure out our supply chain to, you know, hey, we need to cut back here. We need to focus on these things. And I did look back to that time in 2008 because we had that feeling like, oh man, everything's about to fall apart again. But then we realized if we could actually hang on 
and show strength and like really dig into all the things that we're good at, you know, with our store service and, you know, really, you know, bringing the right clothes to market and telling a great story that if we could show strength in that time of where everything is down, we could come out in a really good spot. And it, and we were fortunate that that happened, you know, then by 2010, man, all these great things started happening for us. I tried to focus, tried to get in that mindset when the pandemic happened, we had to really scramble. And, you know, the first thing we did was had, was really just cut our whole, I mean, we cut the collection in half. You know, we stopped doing some categories that maybe weren't, you know, producing as well as they could, or they were just small and we, you know, the logistics became really tough. So we just really kind of focused on the, you know, the core things that we're, that we're doing. That really helped get us through the really rough times, you know, COVID, certainly when the, the shops were closed for, you know, some six to nine months um, in such a big part of our business. And it really helped us focus to digital and transfer so much of our focus to how we sell digitally, not only to the consumer, but also we had to figure out a way to, you know, uh, put together digital presentations for our wholesale accounts. Right. You know, so we're cutting swatches, sending it to them, and then we're having Zoom calls and video conferences to help sell the collection to them because we weren't doing face-to-face appointments. So it really did help us integrate digital back into, you know, or not back into, but into our processes and how we sell and communicate. It, it forced us to do that, but it also forced us to kind of focus on what's important and then really focus on the things that mean a lot to us, the items that mean a lot to us and the categories that mean a lot to us. And how do we really look to build from a point of strength and versus just trying to be everything to everybody. And so there was a lot of focus on that and really digging into focusing on the customer and what was working and what's, you know, what was not working. Have you opened all your stores? Yes, we have. I mean, like personally, like as a company. Yeah. Yes. We're involved in detail with every one of the shops of our own shops that we open. How's the traffic? Uh, Traffic has, I mean, certainly been off. Although the last few months, I will say that it's been, um, it's been much better. The the numbers are returning to pre-COVID, you know, not from a traffic standpoint, but from the volume standpoint, those Mm -hmm. numbers are returned. Um, So it's, it's, it's been really good to see that, but yeah, no, the stores are, I feel like such a personal attachment to when someone's coming into our space that you just want it to, you just want that first impression, all the impressions to just yeah. be incredible. So we really take great pride. We've got a great, a great team that does that um, with, uh, you know, with us. So. Yeah. Your stores have a very residential feel to them. It's a space mm-hmm. where you pretty much want to hang out for the day. And mm-hmm. that's probably influenced, you know, you were talking about before about your Southern roots and your family and, and hospitality. Mm-hmm. Does that same mindset also influence your philosophy for selecting the neighborhoods for your stores, mm. ones that kind of easily endear itself to the community? Yeah, man, it it it, it does. No, it doesn't mean that you know some things you go, wow, that's just an incredible business opportunity. You know, it has a great. We can we'll figure it out, but the opportunity is wonderful, so we need to like do that particular space, right? 
But like when we moved to, you know, when we opened on Bond Street in New York, man, it was crickets over there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still not the most bustling <laughs> area of right. New York City. Right. But I mean, it we I just loved the space so much. You know, it was the old Bowery Lane Theater. Yep. Fell in love with it. And it was completely, you know, raw and needed so much work. But I could also look at the neighborhood and go, you know, this is where I used to hang out kind of some, you know, I used and then I real, you know, the Bowery Hotel had opened. You know, it's like, wow, there's so something's going on here. You know, this is gonna like really take off. And you know, it did it did in some ways, but it also was a way for us to go. We can be a part of this neighborhood and we can be part of this community by doing this project. You know, it would help the community if we did this project. That was our philosophy. And thank goodness it did work uh, that it, we were able to kind of do that. And really kind of in, you know, New York is neighborhoods, you know, and that really made us sort of a, gave us a local kind of, you know, position there in, in, in New York and, you know, the Bowery area. My wife and I had gathered the materials for like six months. We put them on two trucks and we drove all the stuff to New York. We brought two carpenters with us from Alabama that had worked on my house. We unloaded all the, the wood in the space and we did the whole thing out of the entire space was all done with recycled, reclaimed materials. No sheetrock period in the space. Wow. And it was just, we camped out there for, for two months, didn't go home. And to this day, one of my favorite things I've ever worked on. It was just just uh, really a, a, so much fun. And it meant so much to our business to like have that space in New York, which where we could, you know, hold our appointments and, um, you know, and have a retail space. And So fashion, music and food and art are really a big part of your brand and you personally. Mm-hmm. And ever since 2009, you host a three-day event in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, widely known as Shindig. Can you talk mm-hmm. about that event? Sure. Um, well, yeah, it's here. We're, we're based in Florence or some people like call Muscle Shoals. And right. if you don't know about Muscle Shoals, it has this incredibly rich music legacy of from the Rolling Stones to Bob Dylan and Aretha Franklin to even modern day with the Black Keys and Alicia Keys. Great. I mean, all this incredible music that's been made here. And so when we opened the shop, we were here in Alabama. We really felt like, you know, I was based in New York before. I'm like, man, if we can get some of these people to come to come down from from New York and see what's going on here and learn about this the music history and the culture that we felt like that'd be a great story to tell and it would help our community and it would, you know, help, help everything, you know? So we did that. And so the first one I think it was 2008, we did that and brought folks down. And what we did is we, we made sure that the hospitality was off the charts with, you know, great food. We had a, a friend of ours with a chef. We had, you know, a, a couple of musicians that were friends of ours and some artists that were showing their art. And it was just a, it was fantastic. And plus we had all the local friends of ours that were mixing with all these people from out of town. And so then we did it the next year and we kind of upped the profile on some of the participants and some of the music acts. And uh, we kind of added a couple of more chefs. And before you know it, this turned into sort of a mini festival that is, you know, about food, music, art, and fashion. And it, it's, it's grown now. We were on our 12th 
before COVID. It just slowly grown over time where, you know, we've had 15 James Beard award-winning chefs that have cooked during Shindig. Mm -hmm. We've had over 30, I think we're at 35 Grammys that have played, you know, if you add them of the people that played in the Grammys, they've won. And so it's in it and people have participated almost out of goodwill. You know, it's not like we could afford to go out and do this. People just, they, it was just, they wanted to help and they wanted to be a part of it. And it just kind of blossomed. It's been so great for our community. It brought a lot of attention to our area and completely, you know, sort of helped transform our, our downtown area a little bit. And we've, it's just been wonderful to, 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 to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, it's and our whole company pours its, everything we've got into it because it's, it's definitely no one's full-time job mm-hmm. and uh, to, to, to pull it off. And it's, it's been great. Now uh, this year we're, we're still trying to figure it out. We certainly, we've been on hiatus with it for two years and community is begging for it. Everyone is, you know, we're wanting it too, but we're also trying to logistically figure out how to do it, when to do it. And, and, and then we feel like too, we, there's some things that we could evolve and maybe change and, and, and maybe kind of start smaller again, just after being out, out of it for a couple of years. It's like, let's just kind of ease our way back into it. Did you fill in the gap for those two years with anything virtually? We, we tried, but it was, you it's know, not the it, same thing. Yeah. No, it's just not the same thing, especially because Shindig was so is so much about the people, you know, it, not only the people participating, but the people that attended you know, from all walks of life and from all over the country. And, and then you get all those folks and they mix with, you know, our local community. And that just creates this unreal energy. That's so much fun and so cool to watch. And so to try to take that and put it, you know, on a, on a digital screen, it just, um, it would take a lot of cameras. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah. A lot of production to do it. I, I think it could be done, but it would, but you need to be able to have that. It's all about the people. So much of it's about the people. In the 2012 <laughs> James Bond movie, Skyfall, Daniel Craig is 007 shows up in a sharp, slim fitting Billy Reed peacoat and became one of the most coveted collectibles for James Bond fans following the film's release. How did you catch lightning in a bottle? You know, was the, you know, someone in the costume department discovered or mm-hmm. was Daniel Craig a fan of the brand? Yeah, we did capture lightning in a bottle and we probably tried to screw that up and didn't, thank God. <laughs> um, no, Daniel Craig had bought the had bought the peacoat this is before you know before he was up for the movie and he was a customer and he he loved the peacoat so much so that he bought two of them and when he read the script for for this for skyfall he noted you know they they kind of tag in the script like you're going to be wearing this you know they really I, i guess they tie in like your wardrobe to to this to the scene they're going to film And they called for this peacoat and he's like, well, I want this peacoat. And they, you know, I think they had some things going on with Tom Ford and other people, but he stuck to that. So then they reached out to us and said, we're going to, we would like this peacoat. We're going to shoot it for the Bond movie. We need 19 (laughs) mediums and 11 larges. Of course, that was, (laughs) we, 
we were scrambling because I, you know, I think we had six. But we're small. I mean, you know, we're we're not. Our whole production run was maybe forty-eight pieces on that thing, but it had been in the collection for years. You know, I'd I'd made that coat at William Reed, so it kept like, you know, it, it had been around, and we we were like, okay, well, we'll figure out how to make. So we figured out how to make them, got them the coats, having no idea what would happen. So lo and behold, it showed up in the movie, and it was in the scene for a long time. Right, and uh, we started getting some calls, and we didn't even know. And we had this guy working with us that somehow got into these chat rooms, the bond, there's tons of these James Bond chat rooms. They talk about the book and it just went off the charts viral. And before you know it, we were getting lots of orders on that coat and we had to, it took us two and a half years to catch up to the back orders because we kept making it. And then we'd have more back orders and more back orders. It was insane. And thank I we love the peacoat <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of cu- yeah a lot of customers discovered your brand for the first time it, it, we, we it's still sort of a gateway for some people you know it's weird it's still like the new bond movie comes out and we see you know the the peacoat like take off you know we'll see the sales increase on it's still our number it's to this day it's still our number one selling outerwear piece every season by far I mean it doubles, triples anything else that we do from a, that item to any other outerwear piece every to, to this day. I mean, we, we just keep it in stock. You've done quite a bit of cool collaborations over the years, drawing from a, really a diverse roster of brands, from Levi's to K-Swiss to Coach to Stetson to, uh, what is it, Balvenie Single Malt uh, mm-hmm. Scotch Whiskey to the folk rock band Mumford & Sons. What is your approach to collaborations? I think for us, and again, personally, we look for connectivity. I think when you when we do a collaboration, you and partner with someone, you want it you want that to be real. You don't want to have to make up some story of like, well, why are you working with that person? You know, you want that to become from just a natural, a natural place and having a connection to that brand or that person or whatever it might be. That's to us starting point one. I will say, you know, we have done a couple where that wasn't at that connectivity wasn't as strong. You could see the result in the final success of the collaboration Mm -hmm. so for us it's all about like we it better be real and you know where we can get out and honestly tell the story so for 2022 are there any partnerships or brand extensions or projects that uh, we can expect that you could share with us yes and you know with covid and and everything else i mean a lot of our plans have you know gotten put on hold with partnerships and collaborations and now we're sort of back into getting that stuff planned. i can't specifically mention these things because there's still some contract stuff happening yep. but i will say that we are partnering with a, a, a really incredible music brand uh coming up for uh, this coming into 2022 we're also partnering with a really awesome uh home and decor uh brand which we're very very excited about and also with a, a really great heritage athletic brand that is um, that I have some great connectivity to that we're real excited about as well. So definitely see these extensions, certainly with the way the stores are with kind of the residential vibe of the shop. We really see sort of the home and the decor as a, a really 
natural area for us to evolve, certainly in collaboration. The lifestyle, yeah. Yeah. So we see those things and we're and, and more of those to come. And um, we've, we're real excited about the partner that we're working with because we, we see that as sort of something that could be longer. We, we try to look at it too. We're certainly on the brand collaborations. I think for us, we've learned that when they can have longevity in the relationship, not just a one and done, that it, it, it feels better. And I think you go into it with a, with a different intention. I think looking at it long, looking at those relationships long-term really are the betterment for the, for the, the end result of the product. So Billy, my final question is the luxury item question, which I ask all my guests. So if you, if you were stranded on a deserted island and you can only have one luxury item with you, what would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of air transportation or water transportation <laughs> or anything that requires mobile service. So you can call someone to get you mm. off that island. It's just you, mm. lots of sand, lots of palm trees and lots of ocean. What would that one single luxury item you would like to have with you? Well, I got to say, I knew this question was coming. Uh, I had to think about it. And I certainly thought about like, okay, practical, you go, you look at it from a practicality standpoint, right? It's like, well, what's practical? Should I bring a, like a stove? It's like, well, no, that wouldn't work because there's no electricity <laughs> or gas. So I had the practical item, which I thought about my, my lodged, my lodge well-seasoned uh, Dutch oven, hmm. which is uh, seasoned with all kinds of great Cajun food that's been cooked in it through the years that, that would be great to have on the island because practically you could cook, you would have it and have something to cook in. That was my one thing. And then I thought about comfort and sentimentality. And I thought about my grandmother's quilt because I love it in the summertime and I love it in the wintertime. And, and then I was like, okay, but the luxury item, I had this Echernus uh, old uh, recliner uh, that, um, I spend a lot of time in. I actually, I'm sitting there right now working it. I do everything. And I was like, well, I think the comfort part of that would be pretty cool to have. I could, you, you could sleep in it. You could take, you know, it would be there for you. Um, so you is know, that the final, is that your final answer? Billy? I think that might be, <laughs> you know, I want three things, you know, I want something to cook in. I want something to, <laughs> so some sentimentality and comfort and I want to be able to relax. <laughs> okay. You're the first Yes, the mine who gets snuck in three things in one. You got to pass. Think I, I was still struggling, but even before the call, I didn't know what I didn't know which one to do. So, fashion designer Billy Reed, thank you so much for joining me on the luxury item. Uh, thank you. That's a, a lot of fun. Great, great conversation. That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.